Hey, .NET Rocks listeners. So you never went to NDC. I get that. It's Norway. It's Oslo. But did you know that the videos for all the sessions are online? Yeah, go to vimeo.com slash NDC Oslo. You'll see some amazing sessions, and they're all right there. And if you're really curious, you can check out the lineup for NDC 2014, which is happening June 2nd through 6th. NDCOslo.com is the website, but again, if you want to check out the videos, vimeo.com, that's V-I-M-E-O dot com slash NDC Oslo. Richard and I will be there this year. Maybe we'll see you too. .NET Rocks episode 984 with guest Brian Randall. Recorded Monday, May 12th, 2014. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're, uh, we're hanging out with Brian Randall today. He'll be here in just a minute, but, uh, but first, let me talk to my friend Richard. What's up, my friend? Howdy, howdy, howdy. Well, you know, it's another day at TechEd. It's always an adventure, although by the time this show is published, TechEd will be long over, and I'll be off to the next thing. How was it? But, uh, <laughs> it's been great. Yeah, the speaker has been awesome. We have a full roster. Lots of wild cards showed up. Uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a great uh, a great tech ed. That's fun. Hey, I've been uh, doing some real work here at home, and uh, working with ASIO audio, and I've had to use a an, an API in .NET that I had not used before. Oh, really? So that's my better know framework. So roll that awesome. funky music. Roll that funky music, Batman. All right, buddy, what do you got? So it's buffer.blockcopy. What is this? This is a generic memory copy from one array of any type to another array of any type. I'm sorry, are we talking actually about the .NET framework? We are. Wow. Buffer.blockcopy. And you basically pass it an array, and I said of any type, system array, an offset, integer, a destination array, a destination offset, and then a count, integer. And it does all the conversion in the background, and it's a block copy. It's just that. It's not an iterative copy. It does a block copy. So if you have this huge array of floating point 32-bit numbers, right, and you want to convert that into 16-bit samples, let's say, you know, or bytes, Yep. Boom. One shot. Nice. Don't doesn't need this... to be in in unsafe mode. It just works. No, this is cool. It is cool. It's plumbing, I know, but you know, once in a while you need it. This is real life, you know? Real life. The apps have to be built. That's right. And so. they could tell you've been programming when you whip out a genuine piece of the framework you had to learn to solve a problem. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. very cool. And I, you know, it it's just one of those things. So there you go. Buffer.block copy. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 961, and that is the one we did with Michael Learned talking about release management, which, of course, ties with our whole ALM story and the way Studio does things today and the, and the, uh, the whole technology they acquired from InCycle called InRelease. Mm-hmm. Remember that show? Yeah. And this comment comes from Mark... Holy man, here we go with a last name. I'm going to say Wojciechowski. <laughs> okay. No, that's wrong. Let's try Wojciechowski. 
All right. Wajikowicz, I like that. So Mark says, uh, hi, Richard, one comment you made about SQL Server data tools deserves clarification. Mm -hmm. When you implied that SSDT will preserve the data of a dropped column in a rollback, I don't know of a scenario where that will work. Uh, what SSDT does do is provide a flag to prevent data loss. If you have this set, it will check for the data in the table and raise an error if that data does exist, exiting the script. If not set, it will drop the column. And that is that. Hmm. If you roll back to a previous version, it will add the column back to the table without data. While that might sound grave, the fact is when you drop a column, you rarely need it back. And if you think you might, you can plan for that. I just don't think the database development is so haphazard. Mm -hmm. I think every dev needs to be using a tool like this to deal with their databases. It makes development life much easier. And uh, Mark, having been a DBA, the reason I avoid tools like this, like the plague, is that I'm afraid of losing data. And so the whole point I was bringing up was the fact that SSDT is really careful about not losing data at any time. So it's, and it's really about giving the DBA's confidence to say, hey, let this thing generate your scripts for you. It's as cautious with data as you are. And there's lots of scripting options to be able to manage stuff carefully. Like if you do add a column to a given table, you can basically take all of the, uh, the constraints off of it and have it survive. But I uh, appreciate your comment. It's certainly an important piece of this. And I'm always frustrated with the number of people who just have no idea, once again, of all the stuff that's in studio, like the data tools. They can make your life way easier. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest tech and creative training library on the planet. They have over 3,000 dev, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They're still releasing around 40 new courses every month, and they offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Mr. Randall. Brian Randall is a partner with MCW Technologies, a Microsoft ALM MVP, a well-known speaker, and co-author of Professional Application Lifecycle Management with Visual Studio 2013 from Rocks. Welcome back, Brian. Hey, guys. Great to be back. Great to have you here. You're a tech ed with Richard, right? That's right. Got to cause a little trouble, a little DevOps trouble. <laughs> are, you guys doing any, are you guys doing any DevOps things together at tech ed this year? Uh, unfortunately, no. We're just going to cause trouble in the streets. <laughs> yep. Watch out, Houston. Yeah. <laughs> but you have done a lot of work in the past. In fact, um, you did some stuff on the road trip last year. That's right. Yeah, Richard. Richard and I have I've done that. We've been speaking together and uh, working together for years on things. And uh, you know, Richard and I, I think are the uh, canonical example of DevOps yeah. in that uh, we can't help ourselves. We love playing with servers and and setting up networks and databases, but then we also love writing code. And uh, you know, we see the value of both sides and have always been about hey, let's get along. Let's not you know be acrimonious to each other. So DevOps on TFS. Now that that's a very broad stroke and uh, covers a lot of things. I imagine. 
Where do we start? Well, f- fundamentally, you know, I think as we in, you know we get into the middle of 2014, you know, the industry at large has been thinking about this for a while. Going back, you know, Flickr get the Flick guys from Flickr and Yahoo get a lot of credit for their talk at Velocity in 2009. Um, but what we're we're starting to see is that the mind share is getting to a point where it's that thing that people are starting to say we have to do. And so we think about the Microsoft stack, what we're what we're what we're seeing is that Microsoft has built a great ALM hub in T Foundation Server and optionally if you want to be on the cloud, Visual Studio Online. And what we provide in there is the core things that devs are entitled to to get stuff done in a team, version control. Um, TFS now has a choice of version control. You can use centralized traditional version control that they've been shipping since 2005, technically 2006, but anyway. Right. Um, and now we have Git. Microsoft said, you know, we're not going to build our own distributed version control. We're going to go with the industry leader, the one that everybody loves. We're going to make a fantastic Git server, as well as we're going to make Visual Studio a Git client. And I do. I show demos where I can use the GitHub client connected to TFS. I can use Visual Studio connected to GitHub. Um, you can use OS 10, um, go into Xcode, connect to it, Visual Studio Online. Mm-hmm. They said, we're going to play ball. They have guys from Microsoft who are committing to the core Git source code base. Mm-hmm. Microsoft is giving back in a hardcore way with Git. But that's, a, that's in the product, right? Baseline. Tracking your works, baseline. Um, Getting team builds, baseline, continuous integration, baseline things that are in the product that people are getting mature enough toward that is something they expect to do. Just like you don't use a modern ID like Visual Studio without things like IntelliSense and a debugger, right? So that's the baseline ALM. And then we start getting further into, well, what's, what can they add value to? And this is where we're starting to see uh, DevOps. So a big thing in 2014 is Microsoft has a release management product that will take your build output and run it through a release pipeline and help you get into your different environments. So your dev integration, your test, your user acceptance testing, staging, and ultimately all the way to production. Um, so that's probably the, the shining light. You know, a couple of years ago, they added integration with SCOM. And, you know, SCOM is Microsoft System Center Operations Manager product that lets you monitor your entire data center, um, all your servers, your applications on your servers. And they had a, had a feature called Application Performance Monitoring, which lets you get runtime data about an application if it's not running fast enough, so that type of performance, as well as performant in it's not having exceptions, and lets you get exception data. And the key thing is they created this thing called the TFS Connector. So, you know, SCOM has this console that is the 747 dashboard for ops data. That's what ops guys use. But a dev walks up and goes, I don't know where to go. He doesn't have to because with a SCOM TFS connector, I can take an alert from SCOM, shove it over to TFS. It shows up as a TFS work item. The dev team can triage, and they can interact, and you have this full traceability going back and forth. So Microsoft is like saying, okay, there's all these things that are DevOps. We're going to start providing you with solutions. They'll be extensible if you don't like them. And hey, you know what? If you don't like ours, we'll play nice with others because you know the mm-hmm. new Microsoft, starting with Build, has just is just an amazing thing. You start looking at what they're doing, they're saying, hey, we're going to build great stuff, but hey, we'll play well with others. What the hell? Do you think Microsoft inside is using these tools to deliver uh, even Visual Studio on on uh, fast in faster iterations? Well, definitely from a practice standpoint, yeah. Well, TFS DevDiv uses it. They use Visual Studio. They use the tools. Uh, when it comes to uh, SCOM, I don't have unfortunately insight into if they use SCOM inside their data center. I know they I know they use system center extensively. I don't I can't speak for the TFS team. Hmm. I know 
um, they use their core frameworks. And now release management, they don't use release management yet because I just, having worked with the, inside the sausage factory, Microsoft already has an extensive process and automation to get their bits from the dev team into production. They have a process internally called Rock release only quality. Mm. And that's, that takes care of things like automated code sign to, you know, two signers with smart cards. They take copies, anything that gets published, Microsoft stores off. They have a, a secure repository somewhere out in the world that they can prove this is what we put up on there. Have any of those features of that made their way into TFS? Uh, not yet. I mean, you can do some of those things, but Microsoft as a commercial software vendor at the scale of Microsoft has some very specific needs that, you know, it's great that Microsoft can do it, but a lot of people don't want to do it the way Microsoft does it. Yeah. Um, it's like Microsoft has customized work item templates for how they, they track their work. And they've given us samples, and they've even shown them at talks. And when people see it, they usually go, no, I don't need that. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the needs of – it's like Windows. When people say, well, is the Windows team using TFS? You know, the Windows team is looking at pieces of it, but Windows does some things that really no one else in the world does, building software at the scale of Windows, especially when we take Windows Server and the client and all the pieces. Um, and, and is TFS one of those module modular pluggable things where if you wanted to do those kinds of customizations, you could yourself? Well, TFS is hugely customizable. Yeah. Um, I do I do work with customers, and I've changed over the years because there's a certain technical debt that a team takes on when you customize your ALM tools, and you have to do it appropriately. The problem is, let's be honest, developers, you know, we're, we're like that dog in Up. Squirrel! Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, shiny new... Write code that's just fun, where I don't have a user giving me requirements and they're not yelling at me. It's just for me. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll happily write an extension. Um, so TFS is hugely customizable on-premises to the point I can write plugins, customize work items, have workflows. But should you? you know? Mm. And this is the thing, right? I, tell, I really try to get customers now, especially when they're moving to it or they're, they're re-evaluating their process. And they're saying, we're going to get serious about ALM now. I tell them, look, use TFS out of the box. Understand how it works, right? Because that's a big mistake. People get frustrated with anything new. And so then it's the, the word that comes out is, well, it sucks, man. The software just sucks. I want to go back to X. I w- we'll go to Y because Y is better. I saw on the internet. Right. And, and it's just that, that typical thing of not investing in how and, and, and why you do things. And so I say, try it out the way it is. And then after six months, where is TFS not working the way that you want it to? Where are you a little frustrated? What, were you, what would a little customization do to make you even more happy? Right. And so once, once you get people to do that, they go, well, it's not so bad. And then it's like, okay, yeah, maybe, for example, let's say you have a third-party help desk product, um, and you need some help desk data to come into TFS so that you can track your internal bug fixing with your customer-facing bug fixing. Well, yeah, that's the perfect time to add a little bit of integration. Mm. But just understand that now that is something that you're taking on as an organization that is technical debt you have to maintain over time. And when I ask people, are you in the business of writing TFS add-ins? Is that your core business? Great. If it is, go to your heart's content. If it's not, you just have to treat it as a side project that has a cost associated with it. Right. So to get to your point, then TFS is very pluggable, very extensible. Um, and Microsoft's working even harder to let you have choice in the sense of like today, you can use GitHub from Visual Studio if you want and not use Microsoft's Git implementation. That said, you're going to lose some of the other great things they do because Microsoft, what makes TFS and Microsoft's ALM stack great is not that it's best of breed in every possible category. It's that it's definitely best of breed as an integrated solution for Windows developers. Mm. Um, as well as, oh, 
you know, I got to be careful now. It's not just Windows. With a GitHub integration and their Team Explorer Everywhere client that runs on Linux, runs on OS X, um, anybody can play ball and have a great experience. Build integration for Java devs using Maven and Ant. Um, you know, build integration is a little more difficult because Apple, uh, and this is not me being you know, critical, this is the way Apple is. Apple is not as open as Microsoft. Go figure. Right. Xcode does not let you write plugins. Microsoft for years would have loved to have integrated TFS into Xcode, but for years GitHub said, we do SVN, that's it. No one, we don't let anybody else play choice. So finally, they said, "Well, GitHub's cool, or Git, not GitHub. Excuse me, Git is cool. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll now work with Git. That's all they do. They don't let you integrate bug tracking inside Xcode. Their build technology only works on OS 10 servers. Um, so what you have to do is you have to hack around with with uh, with Jenkins or mm-hmm. Hudson, some of that stuff. Um, and you know, the good news though, with Microsoft's huge integration with Xamarin, we might see some interesting integration on the build process." kind of the way Jenkins and, and Hudson, those kind of things do. Um, but the bottom line is TFS is an open ALM platform. And with the announcements here at TechEd, with the new open ALM APIs with Visual Studio Online and coming to Team Foundation server on-premises later, um, all you need is a REST endpoint, and you'll be able to integrate your solutions with TFS and the family. So I guess, you know, it, it, you look at a company like Microsoft, and they have all these great security things and sign-off stuff like that and you say well why you know why aren't they using tfs or we, we we could be doing that the point is that if you need that stuff you can write it and you can write it in to tfs and that's what you should be doing because those are unique to your situation but uh, yeah, and, but and, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be one of those things that's in the box because you know every not everybody needs it well the keyword not everybody needs it you know i had a work on the workshop on sunday I brought this up. I brought the issue of code signing. And the, you know, with .NET development, there's two kinds of code signing. There's strong naming, and then and there's using you know X.509 certificates, right? You know, authentic yeah. code sign. Right. And you know, the number of people that were doing it in the audience, you know, we had just under 100 people. You know, four or five. You know, the percentages are low. Yep. Uh, when it comes right. to strong naming, right now, we're having a big thing in the community over NuGet and strong names and how that affects the dependency chain. Um. Security, while super important, you know, we still have a huge part of the industry that's kind of got their their heads in the sand about it how, from the development process. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft has to make a choice. We've got this thing that ninety eight percent of our customers will use if we build this feature. On the other hand, we have this feature that, as much as we think it's super important, we're going to put it in there and we're going to get super low usage. Um, it's not that Microsoft doesn't care about security; it's just that there is a value proposition. It's not and, that you can't do it. I can do code signing as part of build. It's just a little more work for me. It's and not it's, a, yeah, and as right. long as there's an extensible point there where I can plug it in, that I'm fine. Yeah, and you can definitely yeah. do that. Yeah, so there you go. But it's yeah, this is not trivial things. I think people battle over code signing because it's just like, well, what does this actually get me? Why do I care? For all the pain it is, this is true of all the security features too. This is very painful, and near as I can tell, it doesn't get me anything. Exactly. When we look at strong naming, you know, strong naming serves the purpose of unique identification, making sure you've got the exact code you're compiled against to uh, that loads up in memory. The problem is once you start strong naming, it creates a sort of dependency chain on what has to be strong named in that chain, and it becomes a, a more restrictive manager thing when you do updates, right? You lose some of the flexibility of pure X copy deployment. Um, and let's be honest. You know, as when Donna came out, I mean, we used to at times 
talk for hours on assembly binding, right? Hours. I could do four hours on assembly binding and how the .NET loader figures out where your code comes from. But people figured out, they said, wait, you mean I can just drop in this directory and it just works? Yeah, it'll work. And it's, you know, okay, I'd rather do that. And you see that (laughs) over and over again. Right? I mean, because yeah. literally, you know, blood's flowing out of people's noses and ears. They've had enough. They said, no more. I don't want to hear about doing somebody. this anymore. So, so Team Foundation Server has all this ability to play nice with others and other people's tools. And that's great. What are the killer features of TFS that you can't live without? Is, is work item tracking really the, the killer feature there? Well, it's, it starts with source control, right? I'm a, I still love writing code. And the fact that now I have GitHub support, or I keep saying GitHub, and I want to, you know, let's be very clear. My yeah. TFS supports Git. GitHub is a company that has hosted Git repositories yeah. as well as uh, they have some service offers that they have an enterprise product. Good, right, good love right, with right. them. Uh, I love the fact that I have a choice now. And the thing is, choice is important because Using Git is not necessarily the right thing for every team. So I, I love having choice. I love having both but, available but that, to me. But source control is is pluggable. Like you can use some. But what, like what I'm saying is, what are what is the killer feature of TFS that that uh, that makes it necessary? Because I can I, use source a, control without TFS. Right. Well, but let's see. That's my point. Then it's it's not one thing that makes TFS great. It's all the things as a unit. Right, it's it's the it's the holy triad when we think about version control, work item tracking, and builds because that gives me things like full traceability. I get to know how my team's doing, and not just how it looks on paper as far as some project tracking tool. Because that's the thing, you can lie in a in a project plan. You can lie when you when you post your timesheet, right? But code speaks the truth, man. So it's the fact that when I check in code, I can associate it with a work item. I then have a build kickoff, and then I go end to end, and I have binaries that track back and say, well, you said you did this. Do the binaries prove that? Oh, they do. It actually runs. Son of a gun. We are shipping. Um, that's it's, it's, it's the three together, man. It's, it's the core unit. You know? and then all the other stuff is, mm. is arguably fluff at the end of the day because what matters most is shipping. That's the number one feature. Right. Yeah, we just take that for granted, right? You just forget that actually that was the goal. Yeah, this this little thing, all the other all the other stuff going around it, you know, and and now with release management, you know, the, this is a big thing in the industry, you know, where DevOps comes in and, and this this notion of continuous delivery, continuous deployment, which is, you know, hey, I've I've got this app and I built it, and when you look at like processes like Scrum, Scrum says, hey, it's not our problem at that point if we've delivered it. And the customer signs off on it. When they choose to put it into production, is, is not our problem as a dev team. And as an industry larger, we're saying, well, actually, it is because what we want to do is reduce the friction and the time from when we deliver it to the actual customer. And so, what are those things that get in the way of getting it out there? Um, and one of the big things is manual processes. And so, you know, we want something that's consistent, reliable, and you know, automated. And, you know, the days of sitting there with a deployment script that's written on paper and you're sitting there entering things at a console on a weekend, um, you know, I think people were sick of it. And so we've, we're, we're really matured in the baseline process. Not everybody is, but as an industry, we're moving forward there. And so that next step is, look, great, I got on the build and my traceability says it's ready to go. My testers say it's ready to go. Um, why, why do we have to wait for it to get to production? Let's get a production process that says – Hey, we've done our homework. We've signed, you know, dotted our I's. Uh, we've crossed our T's, and uh, the bits are ready. Let's get it out there. Um, and so, you know, but change is hard. Change is scary, and you have a lot of grumpy old men going, "No, not my data center." 
well, we don't do it that way. We, we, we take our time. We're diligent. Um, you know. But this still comes down to everybody rolls their own, right? It seems like nobody's deployment process, nobody's testing process. None of these things are consistent. You, each app and each company's environment is different. Yes. And, and that's, and that's why we're seeing the industry step up with new tooling there. It's, it's the new thing. Uh, Microsoft has released management. Um, we also have on the other part from the coming from the data center side, desired state configuration. You know, the thing that I'm telling developers now today, if you're going to be a modern developer on the Windows platform, you must learn PowerShell, right? So it's like if you're doing a web, web development of any kind and you don't know JavaScript, go home, right? Um, and so if you're going to be a part of a modern IT organization delivering solutions, public or private cloud, it's PowerShell. And with PowerShell is something new called desired state configuration, which thinks about configuration as code and, and really says, if we're going to have servers, if I need one server, a thousand servers, and they need to be the same, I should define that in some definition, you know, and have this be able to be orchestrated and automatically done. And then here's the best part. I can have tools that monitor for changes. And if a server drifts out of configuration, I can bring it back in line in an automated fashion. So Microsoft announced this week that they're adding uh, rich support for DSC in um, update three for release management, which is due sometime later this year, which is part of Microsoft's aggressive release cycle now, updates about every quarter. Um, and so what you'll be able to do is have a release management process that's able to integrate with DSC. So not only can I have a web app that I'm pushing out, but guess what? I now have three web servers instead of two. Well, that third web server isn't completely configured for IS the way I need it. Well, guess what? I'm going to push out with my package a DSC script that's going to make sure IS gets set up automatically for me the way I need it. Right? Needs that extra module for, for you know, Windows authentication, for example, because they didn't put that in. And boom, it's ready to go. Um, and this is going to go across the board for products, so it's, you know, database servers, all sorts of things. And the great thing about this, though, is Microsoft says, "Hey, we've got DSC, awesome." But you know you've got other platforms, so we're going to play nice with people, the guys who make Chef, the guys who make Puppet. You know, at Build, they showed that now when you create an Azure VM and IaaS, you have checkboxes to say, you know what, I want the Chef agent in here. Holy crap, who would have thought that? Um, and so, you know, you don't, if you don't buy Microsoft Story, look at Chef and Puppet. They're, those guys are open industry guys that are offering open source, free, as well as paid products for this type of stuff, which is this automated data center. Um, and so with, with what we're seeing here, it's totally changing the game and how we get code that we got built to our customers. Yeah, I don't know how many Microsoft development shops are actually using Puppet or Chef yet. It seems to me if they've got other open source development going on, now they can include their Microsoft stack in it as well. But I guess it's early days. Yeah, no, it's definitely the early days. Particularly because of you know they're more that those other you know sorry Linux um, you know Ruby and stuff are some of the things used in that world. One of the big announcements also is that you know you go to Chef they now have extensions to work with PowerShell. Um, right. So they're coming they're coming to play in our backyard too and saying hey you know we understand you know we have a bias to our world but guess what we want to play nice too. And I think the big thing that I see about Chef and Puppet is an endorsement of a the concept of this you know configuration as code. And B, the fact that Microsoft understands that data centers aren't necessarily homogenous Windows server land, right? Right. You've got these things. And so 
if you're going to manage those, they could write their own and try and convince you they're going to do it, or they could say, we'll do t- as much as we can two things. The best things for Windows, and, you know, great. Obviously, we have rich partners that will provide alternatives, as well as we're going to provide hooks and play nice with others at a level you haven't seen from Microsoft ever. Um, and, and I think those are the two things that are significant about the Chef. Yeah, I'm not expecting a bunch of devs to run out and start using Chef over a Microsoft product or even a, a partner product that is a native Windows experience. But what I am expecting is that you see it as endorsement of process and, and a way of, of, of managing your data center. Right. Just working in a very different way. Do you buy into this idea that uh, that Allspa talked about going to uh, 10 deploys a day? Like just that whole idea? How fast is fast? Um, I think I think there's 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 a lot that goes with that right. If we we look at what the Flickr guys are talking about, there's a couple things. One, the type of application, you know, a single and I use single in the relative term of units of deployment. So, think logical single. When you have a website that you control, right, or a cloud hosted environment, right, where you're not talking about large scale deployment. In other words, people just bring their device or browser to you. And there's no real client deployment other than, you know, some JavaScript or some basic things, right? Right. When you're talking that that is your core app concept, yeah, I think you can get to that. It requires a, a certain maturity. In, protect, in fact, one of the big things is it starts with how do you set up your code, you know, your branches, right? Do you have branches, right? There's a movement when it comes to DevOps and continuous delivery that everybody's checking into main. But when they check in, boy, it takes a lot to check in there, right? There's a huge quality gate. Yeah. Um, and, a lot of te- and a lot of teams aren't ready for that because they're still evolving their process. So it, it starts, you know, can you handle that? And do you have a property that supports that? Because you take, you go to the next step, well, can Flickr deploy 10 times a day to their iOS app? They can't because there's no, this be- gate. because the app because, store is the gate. Right. And so my point there is that not every app is going to make sense to have 10 deployments a day controlled gardens where you maintain and control the structure and all the code, I see it definitely possible, but it requires rethinking both the process end to end. I mean, every step of the way has to be rethought. How you do quality, how you do builds, how you check in, as well as how your users are going to define what they want, right? Users sometimes come with you with a simple thing goes that, yeah, that, that, that wording needs to be changed. So it's a content issue more than a dev issue. Or it's like, look, we need to have the spinning widget here. Simple things that, yeah, you can do those 10 times a day, and it's great. It's really simple. You're not going to right. 10 times a day deploy a new accounting module that affects you know, how you realize income. You, you know, And so that's the thing, right? And, and I think the nirvana is not to say how many times a day you do it. It's that could you deploy when you want to, right? right. Most shops these days right now you say, could you deploy your current bits? No. We're, we're three weeks out from that. We're four weeks out. Um, I have customers that are maturing, but they still have this 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 chasm between IT and ops, or sorry, dev and ops, excuse me, and the fact the team that actually builds it says, okay, we're ready to go, but ITS say, okay, we've got all these things we're going to do because our users expect something, right? And apps have to be able to be updated quickly. You know, if you think right. about Windows Azure, I can deploy a website, and if I do it right, I can have a stage of production to where it might take 15, 20 minutes to get my bits all up there and replicated. And then I do the quickest update I possibly could, which is IP switching, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of internal servers don't have this. It's basically when we update the server, we're taking the app offline. Um, and so it becomes you know, rethinking your architecture, rethinking, using things like feature flags and knobs, right? So that you can 
deploy new bits of code partially, but they're not visible until you've done some more testing. Um, and so that's that's where the fine art is, I believe, Richard and Carl, in that you know people think it's oh, I'm just going to install release management and now I'm doing DevOps. No, you're not. Okay, mm. DevOps starts first with people. It starts with process, and then tools is what it's all about. Right. Um, you got to get your mindset. You got to get your people to get along. You got to get rid of the grumpy old men. The I'm saying no. You got to change your process. And like I said, this starts all the way back to the code line. How do you do branching? Let alone all the things. And tools come last. Yes, exactly. Right. First, kill all the lawyers. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time to take this intelligent discussion offline and deploy my silly bits all over it. <laughs> I think you just merged into the branch. I think so. No, <laughs> it's time to give away an Infragistics Ultimate Collection to one Ooh. lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we do that, let's talk about Infragistics Ultimate. It makes it easy to build stunning apps with incredible performance. Start showing your customers beautiful interactive prototypes right from the beginning. Take those prototypes forward and integrate amazing controls, including animated data visualization, to take your app to the next level. With all the functionality for building web, Windows, and mobile apps included, you have all you'll need with built-in wizards, templates, and step-by-step -step videos will ensure that building your first app is simple. They've tested and tuned against the industry and in millions of real-world applications, including mission-critical Fortune 500 apps, to make sure your apps are fast. Awesome. Yeah. So who's our winner today? Today's winner is Dean Larson. Congratulations, Dean. From Woodbury, Minnesota. Ooh. Golf clap for you. Dean just won the Infragistics Ultimate Collection, Minnesota. Yeah. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, this is the giveaway in the middle of the show. Go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away sponsored products like the Infragistics Ultimate Collection. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of stuff, technology, to one lucky member of the fan club. We've done it for two years now, and uh, this year should be amazing as well. Absolutely. Brian, what's on oh. your Christmas list or whatever it is, your Kwanzaa list? <laughs> Happy Hanukkah, what's on your right? Ramadan list? I'm easy, baby. Um, well, there's a lot of great tech out there. Um, I might have to implement an austerity plan because I've been just, you know, I've, I've been digging too much hardware. Um, so what, you need to do, what don't you have? You need to hire an assistant to sell all your stuff on eBay is what you need. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the great stuff I've been doing in the last month. Um, as you know, I'm a, I'm a speed freak. Um, and I do still do tons of VMs. Um, so starting at the top, the biggest acquisition was I acquired, um, unfortunately it's not in my house, but it's just down the street at my buddy's house, um, a Fios connection to the internet with 500 uh, megabit down, 100 megabit up. Um, and wow. I've been doing tons of work with Azure and I'm uploading these giant VHDs, you know, 30, mm. 40 gigs and watching that I'm getting, you know, 80 to 90% uh, bandwidth out of that upload link is just oh, insane. It's just, right, there's right, just right. I mean, I've, I've told the wife, I'm tempted. We need to move to be closer to the internet. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the is awesome. I, I mean, I have a good link at home. I get, I get five up and a hundred down, but yeah. when you're talking about a hundred up, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. Uh, um, it's so, addictive. 
so that's step one. Step two then is locally. Uh, I've been a huge fan of anything that lets me get my VMs backed up so that I can have snapshots and, and re, you know, because I, I got these one set of VMs I built, 20 VMs. And, you know, when you spend a lot of time on building them, you want to make sure you have good backups because you know, it takes days to get them the way you want it. Although with DSC, it's getting quicker, mm-hmm. I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is I've got, uh, I built a new server. Um, and I, I, you know, my time is valuable. So, you know, while I enjoy building things, you know, I've, I've tended to buy off the shelf, but I couldn't find what I wanted in the right combination of price to performance, mm-hmm. especially for Windows. And Thunderbolt right now is still the fastest direct attached storage mechanism to get things off. So I built a new desktop with uh, Thunderbolt two ports on it. Uh, so I used the Gigabyte motherboard um, and 32 gigs of RAM, and I've got. Uh, four ssds plus two four terabyte drives inside it and then i've got a 12 terabyte external lacy um, box that i get about 350 megabytes per second when i copy to it as well as i've got some ssds which i'm tapping out at uh just under a thousand so you know uh basically um 10 uh was it what is a thousand megabits per second is that a gigab- gigabyte per second uh, I'm just crazy wicked things to back off data off of my drives. Um, it's just that's been insane. So that, that is crazy. Um, it's it's crazy town. And in the, the overall cost was very reasonable considering um, I didn't have to buy new monitors. Uh, 4K is on the lust list, Richard and Carl. If yeah, you ask about what I want sure. that I don't have, sure. Um, and the problem is I've got 330. Uh, 30-inch Dell monitors that I love that are great that are just going to be very expensive to replace, and I'm not ready to do that. Plus, 4K is still in that you know price dropping, new technology. Plus, you need just amazingly monster video cards to get to drive all those pixels. So that's probably the biggest thing I don't have that is lust-worthy. That said, I have this great little device that is much cheaper, much more affordable. Actually, two of them sitting right next to me that I need to talk about for people out there. The first one is getting on the internet. Um, one of the things that I have a problem with is, you know, I may carry a laptop, but mine's a you know, portable data center. I often run 10, 20 VMs, and I've got all these networking setups set up to make them talk to each other and have private networks and stuff. And I don't like having to reconfigure them when you're in a hotel or on the road. So, you know, you can carry these portable routers, but I found the perfect one. It's called the Zuni Connect. And what's awesome about the Zuni Connect is that it's a little, I mean, it's smaller than a pack of cigarettes, um, and it supports being powered off a USB port, or it has a wall plug if you need it. It has a LAN port, and it has a WAN port. But it also has one extra switch. It has what's called a WIPS switch that lets you bridge it to your Wi-Fi hotspot or to a hotel internet connection. And the b- benefit about this is I still have my entire private network, all my private IPs that match my home network, right? So when I go home, none of my VMs have to be reconfigured, right? And I'm isolated and protected, right? And I don't have to pay for one connection. Um, so that is totally awesome and available at Amazon.com. We can post a link on the website for that. The second thing I have is a portable second display. Now, there's a number of them out there that you can buy. Uh, Most of them use Display Link and work over USB. The problem with that is the lag is kind of crap, and so the monitors are crap. Yes, exactly. So I've got an MMT full HD portable display. Now it's it's not super light. I mean it's a little heavier cuz it's actually made of it's got some metal pieces, mm-hmm. but it's full HD, has an HDMI port and 
For those of you who have iPads, it has an adapter that you put your iPad in it, and it has speakers. So you get a 15-inch high-def display to watch your movies on, as well as be a second monitor to allow... Uh, for those of you listening who realize that Brian just cut off right there, what happened was we lost him on Skype, and we tried to get him back, but it was bad. It was very bad. <laughs> it sounded so bad we had to switch to telephone. So are you there, Brian? I am here. Good okay. old pots for the win. All right. So anyway, you were telling us about this amazing thing that had an iPad connection and an extra monitor. So continue. Yes, it's uh, it's basically it's an external display, has an HDMI port, uh, and so if you t- it even has a mount for your iPad, so it has speakers. And so you can use it for entertainment as well as work, a um, couple hundred bones. So if you're a simpler person who just carries one laptop, it's not that much extra to have, and it gives you a great on-the-road experience, gives you that dual monitor effect, which mm-hmm. I find is invaluable. So uh, those are two of my great Road Warrior tools right now that I just love to take with me. Well, I should have known that uh, asking you what you would buy with $5,000 would take 10 minutes. Because <laughs> 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 you, you guys together, you and Richard are the toy boys here. You know, we have we're bad influence on each other. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have pictures of you at uh, before the road trip uh, at Richard's house with gadgets and toys and you know servers laid out all over the table, just uh, tweaking stuff. Yeah, it's just you, you got to bring it with you. And unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's like the hotel we're in right now. You know, the internet is is bad, and so if I'm doing demos, while I love the cloud, you know, it's it's actually getting to the cloud that's that little last mile that's still a problem Mm. and i get paid to show things and talk about it not wave my hands and say well i'm sorry i can't get to my stuff that's in the cloud um and so you know there's nothing against azure azure's great but you need good internet to embrace these cloud solutions amazon included and so people like me if you get paid to show up and do results um i gotta bring it with me yeah right yeah there's no other way so do you have a wish list for TFS? Oh, yeah. i got lots of other stuff that we've been complaining about. I'd like to see some new features made richer. Um, like they had this new feature called Team Rooms, and, uh, but it's, it's, it needs a little more love. What is Team and Rooms? So Team Rooms is interesting. The first one I saw it, I was like, why do I need this? In fact, that's, you know, I tell customers that a lot. Um, so the idea is that when you create, um, when you do work in TFS, you have what's called a team project, right? That's your, your hub for your work. And, they then added a feature called Teams because sometimes you work on a project and you have, you know, let's, you know, let's do a very simple breakdown. You got the guys that work on the database, you got the guys that work on the user experience, the UI, and then you got the people that work on the mid-tier, the web services. So let's say you have three teams. So you got, you know, if you're doing Scrum, for example, the optimal team is anywhere from, you know, say seven, eight people to 10 or 12. Uh, if you got 30, 40 people, you're going to segment those groups into more functional units. And so a team project is this large bucket, and teams let you segment so you could have your, each team can have their own backlog, but still do things like roll up and have visibility. At a larger level, the idea was that, well, oftentimes you have conversations about what are going on related to your team. Now, those conversations sometimes happen in 3D, but for a lot of us, you know, we work distributed, we work in different offices. And the problem is, while we have email, while we have IM, while we have Skype, we have all these things, what we want to do is take conversations about the app, why the build broke, or what are some decisions out of the ether and into a place where it becomes a part of not the rich oral history, but the documented history of the team project. So it provides a place to do chatting, 
but in the context of the team room, which means it's in the context of the team project, which means the data stored in TFS, which means I can go to a calendar and go back in time and see what happened on each day. So first of all, my team can use it that way. And sure, you can say, hey, who wants burritos for lunch? But the recommendation is, hey, the bill broke. Why? Well, here's what we figured out. Here's why. And we have it documented, right? Because, you know, no one likes doing documentation. But if I can make it like a chat, just have a quick conversation and save it, that's awesome. The next thing about it is that you can also turn on events where TFS will post messages into the team room when the build completes, if the build fails, uh, when someone needs a code review. And once again, it's this kind of rich history, which I found great working with a team remote in London. All, everyone was in London except me doing dev. So I turned on these events, and when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go to the team room and see what they were doing for the day. Oh, look, they finished this PBI. Oh, look, they kicked off a build. That kind of stuff is just totally awesome for a distributed team. And even for people that share the same office because, you know, you can talk about stuff in the hall, but then a week later, who remembers what you said for real, right? If you have right. the chat Right, capturing log. all that stuff's important. Exactly. But it, there's some things I want. I want better filtering of the events. I want a richer API to post my own events there. I can post messages, but what I want to do is be able to distinguish a message from a bot or a human versus an event like they can. So it's just things like that that could use additional sugar, um, additional love. Um, I'm looking forward to you know some of the stuff on the wish list they're doing. Um, I'd love to see lab management in the cloud. That's probably the biggest one. I invested heavily in that, and I still use it locally at Hyper-V, and I got a couple of folks that tried it as customers. But these days, you know, it's like set up load testing. Load testing in the cloud is where it's at. I don't want to mm. maintain all those rigs. I just right. want to use it when I need it. And so the same thing is with my Azure subscription, um, you know, and all these ISVMs, it'd be great to say, you know what, I want to run my test lab in the cloud. I don't want to have to maintain a bunch of Hyper-V hosts. And let's right. be honest, while I love Hyper-V and lab management and system center, it's a, it's a big animal to get going right. And, you know, we want to reduce friction, and Azure reduces right. friction. So those are a couple of the big things I'd want to see. That's cool, man. But, uh, it, the other piece of this that I still don't think Microsoft's done a great job around is when you talk about the whole DevOps cycle, is instrumentation of production applications. Like just actually knowing what's going on inside of your app so that you can have good feedback and can really make a difference in things. Well, there are other there are third-party tools that do that well. Yeah. Well, and that's actually interesting that you would bring that up because Microsoft is addressing that. They have something called Application Insights that's in preview. Now, what's interesting about Application Insights is it does all those things you mentioned, Richard. There's only one big downside to today besides it's in preview, so it's not ready for production yet is that Microsoft's going with a solution that says, we're going to maintain the data hub where we collect all of the data, and it's going to be up in, in Azure and Visual Studio Online. And we will let you instrument apps, and we'll, they provide a great SDK that unfortunately is a little biased right now. It supports Windows 8 store apps. It supports Windows 8 phone, um, as well as you can use it with things like uh, ASP.NET websites. Um, to instrument your application and put those hooks in and let you get that rich data about how things are working, what features are your users using, what's the availability, where are my users coming from. But these right. apps have to be able to talk to the Internet. They have to be able to reach out to the cloud. Um, and so while I think Visual Studio, Visual Studio Online's application insights feature is going to be really compelling for a certain base of customers, there's a few things that I find disconcerting. And, and I've given the team feedback, and so remember this is as of, you know, the week of tech at May that, you know, could change and hopefully will, is that, A, they don't support right now SDK support for Windows desktop apps. Well, I find that just rude. It's This is Microsoft. You're not going to support your, your core customer base type of app. 
Right. Um, they also don't support Windows services. And I know lots of customers have Windows services that they use for things. So we need support for that. And then there's just the one that, you know, is one of those things to think about is there's customers that have apps and stuff that does not talk to the internet. They're isolated. They, they want to keep their data on premises. And so those kind of things are things that you think about. And ultimately also they need support for, you know, other popular um, phone platforms. I mean, I love Windows Phone, but let's be honest. Uh, King of the Hill, um, we've got two fighting it out, and that's iOS and Android, right? So, right. um, now, but once again, I would rather see them bring desktop support first because I want Microsoft to support their stuff first and really well. Um, you know, then we can look at even partners for the others. Now that said, as you mentioned, there's other people, and Microsoft right now seems to be happy to let preemptive analytics be your on-premises solution. They have great TFS integration, and they have a rich solution that lets you keep your data hub on-premises or in the cloud. They give you a choice, and right. they do support desktop apps. They do support services, and, oh, guess what? They support Java. They support Android and iOS. So Microsoft's getting in the game. They're getting in big, but they're leaving a huge chunk, which is an opportunity, and I'm sure the guys at Preemptive are going to you know, do the best job they can to fill that hole. But I still think it's interesting that Microsoft would go down this route and just you know, make these choices. You know, maybe they, they see the future as a cloud, but I'm sorry. I think the industry is moving, but a lot slower. And so to provide a cloud-only solution, um, you know, I'm just saying I think it's a mistake, but what the hell do I know? There's more to it than that. But we, aren't you seeing with, like, Windows Azure Pack, the beginning of Azure technology being available everywhere? Like, I, I'm just not convinced that they're totally focused on the cloud anyway. Well, it, so definitely Azure Pack is a good example, and that's why it's kind of interesting. It's like, well, wait a minute. The Azure Pack brings Azure to my data center, so why don't they make the, the application analytics be the same thing? Now, understand, I understand there's engineering cost to that. I'm, there's no question about that. Um, it, but, yeah, you know, on one hand, we see parts of it. You know, when you see some of the stuff coming out of the Windows group and the Azure group, they're very much aware of this idea of hybrid clouds private and public, you know, bringing the right. two together, making you have choice. And the choice with VSO and app application insights is is not there. Um, and I find that a little interesting. I mean, with TFS, I get the choice. I can do TFS on-premises, and now I can do Visual Studio Online. Right. And I don't have 100% feature parity. There's things that are unique to each platform, and that's expected. Um, so it's something new to, to completely say, you know, hey, we're, we're you know, if you can't get to the internet, you can't use application analytics, well, that leaves out a whole swath of customers. You know, and yeah. I checked with my customers in the audience. I, I asked the people just in the in the thing. I did some questions. And granted, there was actually more people I thought were happy with some of the solutions. They were okay with it. But at least 50% want on-premise-only solutions and want support for desktop apps and services and are saying they want their data on-premises, right? Um, and the funny thing, too, is some of the people, you know, and I talked one-on-one with some, and I had a good guy from a large company that uh, people would know that does food services. And he was like, well, we're okay with it on the dev side, but we have an organization that is not prepared for doing all that there or even parts of it, right? Different things. And so, you know, for him, it was like, yeah, he thought App Insights was great and would love to use it. And there's parts he thought he could use, but there are other things that would be blockers. And it's that kind of thing, right? It's not just one thing, right? Some people are saying, hey, I need to be able to do private apps, but I'm okay with, you know, having some kind of shuttle mechanism where my data gets pushed to your cloud repository. That's okay. Right. But the, the, the apps themselves aren't going to talk to the cloud. Um, other people are like, well, you know, cloud-based for my internet-facing property is great, but I want that data on-premises. I don't want it stored in your data center, right? right. Um, because my servers are not in your data center. Um, you know, and then there are people that are saying, yeah, I love it. I have Azure-based stuff. Great. Anything that I don't have to store locally, great. Awesome. So, you know, they're going to be successful to the point of that people will use it. 
but is it going to be a home run? You know, right now I see them, you know, they're going after people like New Relic uh, more than they are, for example, a company like Preemptive. Um, right. You know, they have this, this narrow band focus, and maybe this is just V1. Um, you know, like I said, it's my job to keep them on their toes and to, to bring feedback from my customers and the people I talk to in the audience and, you know, take it where it, where it may go. Yeah, yeah, we'll see where it ends up. So what's next for you, Brian? What are you doing at uh, the rest of TechEd? Rest of TechEd, I am just helping people by answering questions and just being Brian. I have no more sessions, uh, which honestly, you know, my ego demands me being on the stage. I love being up there and talking. <laughs> but uh, there's a happy person that is right now still in his hotel room going, you know what? I don't have to be anywhere today formally. Um, I will be hanging out at the ALM booth and talking to customers and uh, answering questions best I can, but I'm going to enjoy Houston and uh, uh, get a little vacation time because this is my third week on the road, and the last couple of weeks were uh, heavy speaking and uh, on-site at customers. So um, Daddy's getting a little vacation here, and then uh, I'll head nice. home after that. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brian. It's been great talking to you. You know, guys, thanks for having me on the show. I always love to talk to you. And, of course, it's even better person when we can call it the Maker's Mark and have some fun. Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it's soon, my friend. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a